So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to cruise from founders and friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Orn. Welcome to the Founders and Friends podcast with Scott Orn. And before we get to an awesome podcast with Leah Desi Olive, one of my favorite CFOs, we're going to do a quick shout out to our friends at Rippling. They make an amazing payroll service. It also handles benefits and it enables you to spin up your new hires very quickly and plug into all the web services. So you don't have to spend a ton of time creating usernames and passwords and all that kind of stuff. It's huge time savings. We did a study. It saves three to four hours every time you hire someone. So we're huge fans. Go Rippling. Great service. And then another quick shout out to the Cruise Consulting tax team. Tax team's working super hard. Even though the deadline got pushed because of COVID, they're still busting out tax returns. So that's a good feeling. So go Cruise Tax. And now I'd like to give a very nice welcome to Leah Desiolo. Welcome, Leah. Hello. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. So you're one of my favorite CFOs. We we refer you quite a bit because you just know what you're talking about, which is there's there's like one of the best feelings as an accounting firm to be able to recommend someone who actually really knows what they're doing. So it's our pleasure and it's our pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's awesome to, to work with your team. You guys are s- similarly, I love working with accounting teams that know what they're doing. So that's a good point. We probably make your life a little easier. Yes. Well, maybe you can kind of retrace your career and tell everyone how you became a CFO for startups. Yeah. So I am the product of two wonderfully opposite parents uh, to start. My dad is a big time astrophysicist, University of Chicago grad, uh, pretty much lives in formulas. And then you've got my mom who's high EQ, high energy, high instinct, five foot French woman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And my dad also looks like Einstein if you really want like a visual so, I have a good visual of your family. It's exactly, great. Exactly. It's great. It's a very family friendly. So, I obviously learned to get along with both personalities. Uh, but growing up, I think people assumed that I would follow in my dad's footsteps. Um, I also went to the University of Chicago. I took heavy math econ classes. And then, you know, out of school, I went to an East Coast bank and then did management consulting and worked with a bunch of the, you know, big, big companies like State Farm and Nestle doing cost cutting or ZBB as they call it in the industry, um, or operational efficiencies with like hundred slide decks. But I hate the cold. And at this point I'm like on the East Coast and it's kind of ironic because I'm from Minnesota. But luckily with the consulting firm, I was able to move to California. And um, as you probably know from living out here, it's really not hard to find people who work at startups, who's founding a business, working on a new idea. And that's essentially what happened to me. I met some really incredible people who all had huge ideas to change the world and like an instinct on how to get it done. So my first company, Style Seat, you know, Melody wanted to change the way people booked beauty appointments. And then, you know, I worked with uh, Atomic and Incubator Venture Studio with Jack Abraham. And they just like rapidly test all sorts of new businesses. And that's really when I saw the opportunity for me to partner with founders and execs to bring their companies to life. So I could kind of bring that quantitative lens to balance out the art and the science that's needed for a company to succeed. I love how you said you talked about bringing the company to life. Because that is what you do. And it's so important to have the financial side 
you know, not not just button down, but like know where you're going. Right. As, as you're going to life. I, I think that's such a cool analogy. Didn't you work with Roxbox too? I yeah. So I I mean I've worked with over twenty companies at this point. Ah. Um, you know, I, I I've definitely worked with all different industries. Roxbox, near and dear to my heart, I rolled off of them uh, in January. But yeah, consumer businesses, SaaS businesses, marketplaces, but really, really amazing founders who are excited to kind of get that financial diligence in place. Yeah. I just bring up Roxbox because it was a every month getting the package to look because Vanessa was a subscriber, still is a subscriber. Yeah. And uh, it was all, actually, it was kind of fun for me because I, I get to see what she got. And it was at such an affordable price point that it wasn't like, I wasn't stressed out <laughs> by the jewelry she was buying. Yeah, I, let me tell you. So the time that I was working at Roxbox, I was also working at a company called Stable and they do robotics and charging operations like data science for electric uh, fleets. And so I would go in the morning to Roxbox where you're walking into like a beautiful office with jewelry everywhere. And it's like, you know, a full woman exec team, everyone's yeah. wearing like crazy jewelry to then like taking the bus down to the mission to a garage where there are <laughs> everywhere. And it's like a bunch of engineers. And the only place you can take a phone call is in a car where the robot is testing on. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. You live, you live both sides. You're not afraid to get your hands dirty, yeah. I guess, in the robotics, uh, like literally get your hands literally, dirty. Literally, yeah. Literally, you got to watch out for the bot to not hit your head. I love it. You brought up like you work for e-commerce companies, work for robotic companies, work for SaaS companies. So maybe in a little bit, we can cover kind of some of the different business models and what founders should be thinking of for those. But COVID is kind of one of the big things that everyone's thinking of right now. Yeah. And we're taking this April 14th. I mean, what what are you seeing out there? How are you advising your companies? The one thing I've noticed across, you know, pretty much every business model in every industry is everyone's feeling something. So one, you know, if you're starting and feeling like a CEO, like you failed, you haven't, everyone is feeling the pain. But I will say that, you know, if you haven't already, you should start planning now and you should be okay with letting go of your original plan. You know, so so really what I would say is like, take a look and build a scenario, identify uncertainty. So for instance, I have one company that is highly dependent on trade shows. And so, you know, we pretty much had to build a full new model thinking about, well, what happens if the trade shows uh, are canceled, even in October? What does that mean to sales? Or what if you're launching a new product? Or how does consumer demand change, you know, based on unemployment? So you can bucket those scenarios into best, worst, and middle, and then craft responses for each. So what happens in the worst case with headcount and revenue targets and runway? And you know, I think the important part is being able to iterate and be flexible. So you look at these scenarios week over week and find trigger points at which you know you may need to flip a switch and do something else. Yeah, I, and I didn't mean to interrupt there. I, I was going to say I just love scenario analysis. And that's such a really great point because I feel, find like it helps founders and even we do scenario analysis for Cruise Internal. It helps you think through what could happen, what could go right, what mm-hmm. could go wrong. And so when, you, when you've already done the kind of pre-thinking and encapsulated that in a model, you're, you've done the hard work, you've done the mental energy. Yeah. And so when, when whatever direction happens, you can just react to it and not have to try to cope with a huge challenge like COVID, but, you know, simultaneously making decisions. You've kind of already made decisions. Is that what 
how you kind of see your company. It's like exactly. it must be it must be like it must be nice to walk in and be like or virtually walk in through Zoom and be like, hey, remember we had that downside scenario? We can put that into play right now. Like we know what to do. Yeah. And I mean, I think a, a big part of that is making sure that the team feels connected and that there's transparency. I think there's so much uncertainty that the least you can do is create some form of certainty of like, we are aware of the different directions we can go. And we're communicating that with the important you know, stakeholders of our company to make sure that we have some confidence of, you know, the direction we need to go. And I'd, I'd say like, uh, beyond just, you know, the numbers of scenario planning, there's really a delicate balance between cutting costs to survive today and like investing to grow tomorrow. And I think that that actually post scenario planning is really the strategic piece where the executive team should be getting together and finding that balance so that they can come out of the presumably recession strong. Yeah, that's a really good point. Are you are you finding are you having that discussion with them or that you say like, um, you know, hey, if we need to go in a super survival mode, we need we can do deep cuts, but we want to we want to preserve as much of the team and as much of the fabric of the company as possible so we can come out strong. I, I think your point about coming out strong is a really good one. Yeah, I, I definitely am. I think a lot of, you know, panicked companies are like, we need to cut everything. And, and the worry there is that you just don't want to cut to the bone, right? So I uh, there's a lot of really interesting data out there about what companies have done in historical recessions. Obviously, this is a little different. We've got a global pandemic, but, you know, you can still categorize companies into three different exec team strategies. One is like prevention exclusively, where they're really trying to avoid losses. And the problem is, is that, you know, you're ignoring key initiatives if you're just doing across the board cuts. And you're essentially expecting to do the same with less rather than going back to your your numbers and saying, how can we become more efficient? And I'd say more importantly, obviously, with cuts is that it permeates in the organization. So, you know, layoffs obviously reduce costs quickly, but they also make recovery more difficult. So that's generally what I advise, you know, looking at that extreme and saying, yes, of course, you know, we could give ourselves several more months of runway, but here are the risks. And then on the flip side, there's kind of the promotion focused companies that play offense and invest, you know, a lot more than their peers. And they're, you know, they, they may have just raised around and, and they feel like they're, they're doing well. The, the, the risk there, and I, I have a couple companies that fit in this bucket, is that um, they may be adding bells and whistles to their products and, and essentially missing early customer warning signs where even if they're doing well, they may have just raised around, but their customers are cutting budgets. So you need to make sure that even if you're fine, you're adapting to the environment so that you're not doing something and suddenly by the time you realize it's not clicking, it's too late to really catch up on costs. You made so many good points there. The the making sure you're paying attention to your your customers' early warning signs is such a good one because you may be selling into a market. Your end customer may be feeling it, but it hasn't worked its way through the supply chain or the right. value chain. Right. That's, yeah, that's super smart. The other thing that you said I think was that was super smart was, you know, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but like maintaining the team and, and not cutting to the bone. And, and being respectful of all the investments that it took to get there. Like, you know, even like us, it takes a lot of effort to hire and train people. Yeah. yeah. And so it may look nice on a spreadsheet to let a few people go and trim some costs, but that's 
that's real, that's real work. And, and if you're going to need those people long term, and hopefully you will, or you wouldn't hire them in the first place, retaining them can actually be the more cost effective approach. Right. The, the saying there is like, you know, when it comes to layoffs, measure twice, cut once um, is, is the first piece. And ideally, you just pick really the low hanging fruits, you should be looking at you know, software subscriptions, all your vendors, uh, reassessing retainers, thinking about rent abatements, all while looking at your headcount. You know, there's obviously cuts are necessary, but recruiting fees are really expensive. And so if you have an awesome team, there are plenty of other directions you can go to try and save costs. I, I know some teams that have done, you know, salary decreases. I think that's a little controversial. Some teams really don't like it. Some teams it's worked really well. But, you know, it, you don't always need to, to go down the route of cutting, you know, half of your headcount. Yeah. And you talked about the salary reductions and how that can be perceived as controversial. I mean, what's your opinion on that? Because I, I see both ways, too. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm really torn. I think that, you know, if I had to pick between letting go a ton of people and doing, you know, a larger exec cut first. I think that's a very important piece is that the executive team needs to come out first and say, we're taking a significant cut. You know, even the founders, if they're able to, to say like, we're, we stopped paying ourselves and you're able to trade that salary decrease with equity. I think that that's a nice trade-off for, you know, it will still, no one likes to get a pay decrease. So that is going to hurt some morale. But if you're able to couple it with some of these other things, that might help versus, you know, cutting your buddy in the office and suddenly you're like left at a desk that has no one else around you. Yeah. One of the justifications I've heard for doing a pay decrease is just you can, you like, it's a little bit of like the collective taking the pain instead of just, a, you know, not few people, but more like fewer people. So like, as a way to preserve as many jobs as possible. I mean, what's, what's your take on that? I agree. I think generally the executive team should be taking on more of the risk. There, It depends mm-hmm. on the stage of the business. I think that if you're a 10-person team and you've got a, you know, a decent share of the company, that type of sentiment makes sense. You know, you're like, yeah, we're on this together. We're all going to do the, you know, we, we believe in taking a salary cut to make this live on. But if you're at like a LinkedIn or <laughs> a large, large company, I think it's harder because you're working with some folks that frankly, like just don't have that risk tolerance and don't feel like they should be taking on that much risk for the business. Yeah. Good job touching on both sides. Like I can see, I can see the benefit of that. And then also sometimes you worry if you do a salary cut, maybe some of the best people end up leaving because yeah. they can yeah. just go somewhere. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. These are like the hard decisions. I mean, this is why it's so valuable to have you working with a, with a founder because they can, these are like, I, I mean, I've got 20 years in finance and accounting and everything and investing and I still don't know the answers. And I know, you don't, you know, you're a humble person. So it's like you have opinions, but yeah. these are, are tough things to work out for each company. Well, especially since, you know, we unfortunately just don't know how long this is going to be. I'm I'm looking at the charts every day. I know a lot of people are and it's it's like is this going to be through the end of the year? Is this going to bleed into next year? And obviously that has a huge impact in how we're able to fundraise and if you need to extend runway even more. And so it's it, it is tricky, but that's why I think the 
the most important thing is having these scenarios laid out and then looking at them on a weekly basis. Like even if you're really cash strapped, I mean, I built like a daily cash model for one of my companies. So that, that's like one great way to understand exactly who you're paying and when. Yeah, that's a really, that's, that's really cool. Well, there's another, and I, I love this scenario analysis. There's another tool I like to do, which is, I think you probably do this for all your clients which is just the budget to actuals yeah. so they can see exactly what they were actually spending money on. Cause mm-hmm. I find that a lot of people don't, they don't really have it dialed in and they're kind of surprised sometimes of what's, what's going out the door. I mean, what's your experience with doing budget actuals and do you do that for your clients? Yes, I absolutely do. And I think the nicest part about doing budget to actuals is the variance that comes out of it. It just mm-hmm. a little bit more accountability on teams. So, you know, if you're budgeting things and you're not actually looking back on a monthly or quarterly basis to see what happened, you're not going to learn. And I think that's the biggest learning, not only within finance, but product or uh, data where, you know, you could be tracking all the data you want, but it doesn't matter if you're not tracking, you know, what you planned for and what happened. And so um, that is definitely one of the like table stake activities, I would say, if you have a CFO, they should be doing it. If you don't have a CFO, you know, just build up a simple model and, um, you know, that could follow your exact chart of accounts if you're using QuickBooks or Xero or NetSuite and just look at that variance on a month to month basis. Yeah, that's one of the advantages of working with a CFO like you is that you bring some discipline to the process and I'm sure you have like the, the weekly meeting, the, thir- the second week of the month, you're going over that variance analysis yeah. in depth with the CEO. I find that sometimes if they don't, if they don't have that kind of, it's almost like going to the, uh, the gym and having a trainer that you work out with. It does, you know, you get those extra uh, bench presses and steps with the trainer. It's, it's kind of like that with you. Like they, they know they, they're going to look at it. They're going to be held accountable. And it, it, it makes their decision making a lot faster because they know they're going to be held accountable. Right, right. And I mean, there's obviously a lot to uh, budget to actuals. The controller type CFO may exclusively look at, you know, each chart of account and say, oh, well, why did you know we spend more in professional services? I also think it's important to look at the metrics that are driving, you know, revenue and costs to understand, you know, maybe our unit costs were totally off. And that's like a huge flag for the business to try and um, operationalize that or focus in on it. That's a great point. Um, What do you see in in the VC world right now? Like you've got a lot of clients, are people raising money? Are they they kind of going quiet? Like what what activity level are you seeing? You know, it's, we've had a hard run, I would say, you know, before, before Corona was WeWork. And so oh, yeah. Yeah. And that was that actually so long ago. It feels like a long time ago, but I, I'm remembering it obviously because I was fundraising then too. And it was incredible the shift of what happened after WeWork, where suddenly, you know, we've been spending a decade of I mean, slowly shifting out of it, but growth at all cost to, you know, suddenly unit economics matter, what are your profitability, like, that's all I want to see. And, you know, that made it very, it made for a very different financial diligence process when you're trying to, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, you're no longer just being expected, you know, annual financial forecasts, you're suddenly sending out like, detailed unit economics. 
So I would say it started in the fall where suddenly companies were still fundraising, but the way they were fundraising was a little different. It was people were a little bit more hesitant. They wanted to do a lot more diligence. It wasn't just like a strategic, like, yeah, I like your business idea. And then obviously with Corona, I think it almost feels like people are on vacation. Like they're, they're checking their emails. Like there's definitely activity with my companies and fundraising. But um, for the most part, I think things are just taking longer. So if you are going to fundraise, I would, I would add like six months to the process. I think it'll be interesting, you know, if you're a larger company, uh, you may have a little bit more luck with fundraising out in, in Asia where their markets are starting to, to pick up. Mm. And on the flip side, if you're a really early stage company where the VCs may not be, they, they don't have LPs that are like heavy in the public markets, that may be okay as well. So um, I think there are definitely pockets of uh, venture groups that have availability and are excited to to invest, but it's a little slower. Yeah, we've seen, I, you made a bunch of great points there for just the WeWork to summarize. I agree with you. I, I saw it getting tighter. Yeah. Um, and I saw, I mean, this is kind of a plug for you. Like I saw investors asking for like real, real diligence, like real financial models, the yeah. scenario analysis you talked about. I know. Like, seed stage. I mean, quite literally, I had a seed stage company and, and, and I've got like a template in my mind that I know that like we can raise with, with this type of content and it didn't, it didn't work. They were like, no, we need more. <laughs> yeah. And we've been seeing that too. Also, like just the general hygiene. Like, yeah, we saw some clients that hadn't, hadn't invested enough time, like answering our questions and things like that. Yeah, have like the last minute, like, oh my gosh, I need to get six months of questions that we've been we we ping people every like we have a, a set cadence too. Yeah, and they were kind of trying to play catch up because they you know for lack you know people could just get away with that for the last couple of years. So that's, yeah. I definitely saw that. And I think also it's, it's a time where I've been through a bunch of these cycles and like having an expert like you to help the company is actually really valuable because there's also just a lot of like tea reading that happens. And a lot of like, when the, when the processes go slower, you gotta, you gotta be on your toes. You gotta get information back to the VC so they don't drag out right. any fat any longer. And yeah, it just kind of our experience really comes in. It's, it's very helpful. It's like the time of the CFO, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I, I'm seeing it all over the place. Yeah. And then are you doing, I've, I've actually, in our client base, we've seen a lot of companies going back to their existing investors and doing like a bridge round or a convertible note. Yes. I mean, we're seeing that in droves, like it's happening quite a bit. Or What are you seeing? Yes, that is a great point. I think actually most of my clients have done that um, point. I think it's just a, a, a better route if um, if they're able to bridge um, a little capital. Obviously, raising debt is, a, is another option. Um, it just depends on the stage too. You don't want to be, you know, trapped with huge interest rates and over recession. But yeah, I definitely think that if you can go to your existing investors and say, hey, like, can we do a bridge round? I think that's a really great route to go. Yep. And I'm seeing terms kind of like the 20% discount to the next round kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, or, you know, or, or reverting back to the previous price was pretty recent. Yes. And to me, that's a signal that, and I'm kind of, I've been around, uh, I'd be curious to see, hear what you think. But like, to me, that's the investor being pretty nice, frankly. 
And I'll know things have gotten really serious when I start seeing like a liquidation preference applied or warrant coverage applied. Like things are pretty friendly still, in my opinion. Are, are you? What do you think? I think I think things are pretty friendly. I mean, people want the economy to succeed. Like everyone's looking at the markets right now, even being like, "Why?" Still <laughs> 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 going up. Like what happened to Tesla yesterday? Um, yeah. So. I think generally people are very optimistic still. Um, and maybe that's just because we've got this extra dynamic that you don't normally see in a recession, which is that people around us are getting sick. And so you kind of need to try and like, you know, take a little risk and, and, and help your neighbors out. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think, I, I do think it is nice though, given that I think, especially with WeWork and, and all of the companies that have recently gone public, um, valuations appear to be inflated. And so going back to a prior round is essentially saying we're fine with, you know, valuations at a time where the market was much higher. Yeah. Flat is new up, uh, as I've heard that different times in my, uh, my career. So before I let you go, that you were, it sounds like you were working on the PVV loans and the SBA loans with some of your clients as well, right? I was, yeah, it was, uh, (laughs) a lot of hurrying up and waiting. (laughs) Yeah, so it was a roller coaster. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we did, I, I just counted actually, we did a hundred of them. Wow. Um, but we actually, that's the ones we did, but we have a bunch of clients doing it by themselves too. I mean, it's just, it was nuts. It, any, any takeaways, or was that just a period of your life you want to forget those two weeks? You know, I, I thankfully, I actually think the process was, was relatively easy. There were like two weeks where no one knew what was going on. Which was, you know, every law firm was submitting an email being like, this is my interpretation and then sending it out to the entire list host. But now, like, we know what the application is. It's two pages long. Gusto, if people use Gusto, literally creates a form. They've adjusted it. That was part of the whole, like, interpretation problem. But um, they have a form that will directly tell you what you need to put in the form. So for people who are still thinking that it's going to take too much time and it's not worth it. I would think again, um, especially for PPP, if you qualify, um, you know, given that uh, you may be able to get that forgiven. And then there are plenty of other opportunities out there to try and get, you know, EIDL, an EIDL loan or deferral on taxes. So, you know, it, it was painful at first, but actually all things considered, it was, it ended up being pretty easy, especially now that it's settled. Yeah, I think everyone in kind of our value chain did a good job. Like yeah. Gusto Rippling did a really good job. I mean, the Gusto reports, I think, and Rippling reports changed like five times at least. And we were like, as th- I'll never forget that Friday when the applications were first due. We were going back and forth with Gusto and like, yeah, like, you guys are reading this wrong. And they're like, well, it's AICPA's guidance. That's what we're following. Yeah. And then sure enough, it changed over the weekend, but, but that's not their fault. They were following like very clear guidance from like the national CPA, right, you know, right. organization. Right. So like back, you know, fact sheets at that point. So, yeah. And I think, I think both payroll firms did a really good job working super hard and the engineering teams busted their butt and, and the overwhelming amount of support that was required, like, it was just crazy. And then I think the banks did a pretty good job too. Like, I know First Republic was first out of the shoot for, for the banks we typically work with, you know, for startups. Yeah. But and SVB struggled a little bit the next week, but like it wasn't for a lack of trying. Like SVB yeah. was trying really hard. Yeah. They were building a process from zero. Like I give them a lot of credit. Like I think both banks did a really good 
job. I agree. I agree. I think, um, you know, they didn't have to, none of these banks had to do that. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. They were just helping their clients out, you know? Yeah. Well, I am looking forward to seeing you in person because we're taping this remotely over Zoom and, uh, and Zencaster, but, uh, it's, it's great to hear your voice. It's great to hear all your advice for startups because it's, I, like I said, I have a ton of respect for you and I really trust your opinion. So, and I, I think, you know, if you're a startup out there looking for a CFO, I think Leia is, is an amazing choice. And um, it's, you're, you're, I, you're like one of those people who pays for themselves. Like you pay for yourself and so. money saved and up rounds and getting deals closed quickly. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, my pleasure. Well, do you want to let everyone know how they can reach out and, and if they want to, if they're interested in working with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I, I've been told I need to work on a, a website. So that's a good <laughs> that's an inside joke. That's an inside joke. Um, uh, but uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or uh, Cruz's site. You know, I, I feel really blessed to have worked with, you know, over 20 founders helping raise over 250 million in, in rounds. And, and, you know, I essentially, the way you like to think about me is, is I can take you between stages. So for early companies, I am your zero to one. And so now more than ever, companies need to be financially diligent and I'm happy to help. Amen. You said it perfectly. Well, definitely check Leia out on LinkedIn or the cruise website. Leia, thanks so much for coming by. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. All right. Here. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to cruise. Founders and friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Owen.